I totally agree. It hurts my brain when people just shut the book wherever they are. I can't. I don't understand. I can't deal with it. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning. This podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello and welcome back to Keep It Fictional Book Chat, a podcast from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm Virginia and I'm here with my book friends, Sadie, Mark and Fiona. Now here at the Port Moody Public Library, Compared to many of the other library systems in the Lower Mainland, we like to think of ourselves as small but mighty. And I feel like small but mighty also applies to many of the books, or more specifically, the publishers that made the books we are going to talk about today. March is National Small Press Month. And today, we want to show our appreciation to the many, many, many excellent small presses out there that have made our book lives so much richer. This is the month where we want to spotlight and highlight all the smaller publishing companies and the authors that they have brought to the book world. I find when I was looking up small and independent publishing houses that because they are not publishing a huge amount of books every year, that they often have a specific kind of publishing focus and they have almost like more of an identity, I feel like. You know, many of them are champions of translator works, which of course we are big fans of here. Uh, Many of them bring to us a lot of diverse voices or unique authors, maybe authors that bigger publishers may not want to take a chance on just because they may not feel like they are mainstream enough, so to speak. And I find that once you have discovered a small and independent publisher that you like, you often want to read everything that they have because something that they do resonate with you because they have a focus, a mission, a certain something that they wanted to accomplish. So looking up the different small presses to find books to read for today, and I would encourage everybody to to look up their websites because, you know, you often get to learn a little bit about the publisher and something that we often don't necessarily think about as much when we are reading books to learn about the stories and also what are they trying to do. And one of my favorite that I found was from Restless Books. And this is on the About Us page. And they said, we seek extraordinary international literature for adults and young readers that feeds our restlessness, our hunger for new perspectives, passion for other cultures and languages, and eagerness to explore beyond the confines of the familiar. I just love that line about feeding our restlessness. You know, that is just so true as a reader, I find. So I urge you to explore catalogs and websites of the small presses to get to know and find a new one that you want to explore this month. Can't wait to hear what my book friends found today. So I'm going to ask my book friends to share the small press book that they have discovered and maybe give you half some information, just a little bit about the publisher itself also. So today we will start with Sadie. Excellent. 
All right. So this actually topic was a little bit difficult for me, I have to admit. I don't necessarily tend to seek out small press books. And so when I was trying to find something and trying to find small press publishers, Virginia mentioned they usually kind of specialize in a specific area. Um, I struggled to find something that that really resonated with me and clicked with me right away. So with some help from my book friends, I was able to uh, to find something. And so I'm going to be talking about a book from Algonquin Publishing and specifically the Algonquin Young Readers imprint of Algonquin. So it is um, their young adult and children's portion of their publishing house. And a little bit about Algonquin. It was started, I believe, in 1983. Uh, so it's relatively old, new. I don't know what that would be considered in small press world. I'm going to say maybe it's it's more well-established, possibly. And uh, it was originally started in a woodshed behind one of the co-founders' homes in North Carolina. This co-founder, his name is Louis Rubin, and he and Shannon Ravenel founded Algonquin as an independent press devoted to publishing literary fiction and nonfiction by undiscovered writers, mostly at that time, mostly from the South. So they now, as I mentioned, they do have their um, young readers portion of their publishing. And I believe that they have actually been been acquired by another independent publisher in 1989, Workman Press. Um, So it's kind of a whole big independent publishing party. Um, So the book that I'm going to be talking about today is a book for uh, junior fiction, and it is called The Jumbies, and it is by Tracy Batiste. I actually first read this book a couple years ago when the author came to give a talk at the library, and I was the person who was going to be facilitating that talk. And so I I wanted to get a background for her books, Um, and so I read it, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I absolutely loved uh, the discussion that I had with her about the book and the way that she talked about her book as well was really, really great. Uh, So that's why I would like to talk about it today. So The Jumbies follows 11-year-old Corrine Lamer, and it takes place on a Caribbean island. It doesn't really specify uh, exactly where, but Corrine has lived there her whole life. She lives with her father. Unfortunately, her mother passed away uh, many years ago. And so it is just her and her father, and they live in a house on the edge of the forest. Now, growing up, Corrine has spent her whole life being warned, I guess you could say, about the Jumbies. And Jumbies are spirits, they're ghosts, they're minor demons. They're very common in Caribbean folklore, and they are something to be feared. They're something to be hesitant and cautious of. And so Corrine has always been warned um, never to go into the forest because that is where the jumpies are. Now, Corrine is a little bit weary about these warnings. She doesn't really believe them. She's not afraid of a lot of things. And so she just kind of brushes them off as, as folklore and nothing more. They're not reality for her. That is until two boys steal a pendant that once belonged to her mother and attach it to a small animal who then runs into the forest. Corrine, knowing that she cannot lose this pendant, races after the creature. And as she gets deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest without even realizing it, she finally finds the animal. She's able to take her pendant off of it. Uh, But when she looks around, she doesn't recognize anything. She doesn't know where she is. The light doesn't come through the trees. There's lots and lots of dark trees around. She starts hearing rustling sounds. She kind of looks to her side and thinks that she sees two pinpricks of light. But before she knows, they're gone again. 
again, she said she's not scared, but she's going to get out of the forest as quickly as she can. So she moves back towards the way that she came. Eventually, she starts to see light coming through the trees. She starts to smell the sea breeze again. And just as she's about to leave the forest, she looks back again and she sees those two pinpricks of light, which now look an awful lot like two eyes staring at her. But she gets out of the forest, she finds her father, and she kind of forgets the whole thing. Now, this is a very special day because it is All Hallows' Eve. And on All Hallows' Eve, everybody goes to the graveyard and they give presents and clean the graves and they give a a prayer to the people that they have lost. And this is very special for Kareen because her mother is one of those people. So she goes over to the graveyard with her father And when they're leaving the graveyard, they come across a woman, not really doing anything, just kind of standing there. The woman addresses her father. Pierre, her father, asks if she needs anything. She doesn't say anything. So eventually they leave and the woman stays behind. We then learn that this woman is, in fact, a Jumbi. And not only is she a Jumbi, but she is the sister of Corrine's mother. And she has come to find out what has happened to her sister who left their home 11 years ago and never returned. So this Jumbi has now decided, now that she knows that her sister did not come back because she died, she needs to do something about this. She needs to get her revenge on these people. So the next day, she approaches a witch to try and use the witch's magic to help her stay in human form long enough to get her revenge. The witch refuses to help her, but she steals magic potions from the witch and is able to use them to transform herself into a beautiful woman who will stay as a human as long as she's taking the potions. Through this, we learn that the witch, in fact, cannot help the Jumbi because there has been a long agreed upon truce between her and the two different sides between humans and between jumbies. And so if she helps one, she has to help the other. And so she has refused to do that. The jumbie knows this. And so one day when Corrine and her friends are out in the river, she tries to drown them, knowing that the witch will save them. Upon saving them, the witch is now indebted to help the jumbie as well. So as we go on, the jumbie inserts herself into Corrine's life she inserts herself into her father's life. And Kareen has to figure out how exactly she is going to get rid of this woman. At the time, she does not know that she is a jumbie. She still does not believe in jumbies. She has to figure out how she's going to get rid of this woman who has inserted herself into her life and has has started to ruin Kareen's life. Uh, So it is a wonderful story about a different folklore that we don't always see, which is really, really great. Tracy Batiste, when she was talking about it, this is kind of what she grew up on and was talking about all of the different jumbies that exist. I don't even think I could go over all of them. Um, In the second book, uh, you learn more about the sea jumbies, which I believe was uh, one of Tracy Batiste. She said one of her favorite ones. So yeah, if you're looking for something that has magic, but that's a bit different, maybe not quite as focused on the Western world, this is a really great book. Kareen is a really strong protagonist. Um, She doesn't really back down to anything. And so she's very feisty. She's very strong. She's it's a really fun uh, character to read about. 
Um, and she has some friends that tag along for her adventure, which are also kind of balance out her character a little bit, uh, which is always nice. But yeah, I would highly recommend The Jumbies by Tracy Batiste, junior fiction, kind of nine to 12 age. It does have a bit of a horror aspect to it for that age group. So if you are more sensitive to that thing, um, maybe wait until a little bit older, just uh, gauge how you would do with that uh, when you're reading it. But that is The Jumbies by Tracy Batiste. Thank you, Sadie. You're right. Like, it's kind of scary. Like, I I find that, like, yeah, like, it's, it's creepy. And it's weird because, like, I, I often find, like, kids' books sometimes are scarier in my mind than adult books. I love that book. That's a great, yeah. great pick. Thank you. Well, like, I find that when they're talking about what the Jumbies can do, it's, like, I don't think that she has kind of toned it down at all for for that audience, which I think is great because it it's part of the folklore and it's part of... Uh, what she grew up with but it yeah definitely some of those descriptions are a little bit maybe a little bit creepy for sure all right well thank you sadie for that now we're gonna go over to mark i think mark has one of my favorite publishers more press books so what do you have for us uh yes virginia is in fact correct because i will be talking about dislocations by sylvia malloy which was published by charco press which Virginia has mentioned at least a couple times on the podcast that I can recall. So Charco is an independent publisher that was established in Edinburgh, Scotland, only in 2017. So it's not only a small press, but it's also very recently established. They focus on contemporary, particularly contemporary Latin American literature and translation into English. But they also have some uh, Spanish language publications as well. Not quite as many as their English translations, but they definitely want to bring the Spanish language authors to a wider audience, to the world at large. And in that sense, they've definitely found their voice within that kind of space in publishing. And they sort of say that they aim to act as a cultural and linguistic bridge for you to be able to access a brand new world of fiction that has until now been missing from your reading list. So as Virginia's reading list can attest, it definitely has become much more filled with the Latin American authors as a result of Charco Press. They like to emphasize, but I also like to emphasize their translation work because they definitely put an emphasis on the work that their translators do. And they try to feature them alongside the original authors to showcase the amount of work and the skill that goes into translation itself. So I think they definitely are very notable in that regard as well. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about them and this particular book today for this episode. So a bit about the author of this work, Sylvia Malloy. She was born in Argentina in 1938 to Irish and French parents. And growing up, she learned both English, French, and Spanish. So she definitely had a very strong background in languages and things like that from a young age. She recently passed away just this past year in 2022 at the age of 89. She's been in literature for many, many years. She originally received a PhD in literature from the Sorbonne in France in 1967, when she was still just 29 years old. So definitely a very long life in literature. She held many academic positions, such as at Yale and Princeton, as well as special foundations such as the Guggenheim Foundation, and was the president for a time of the Modern Language Association of America as well. So definitely a very um, rich and diverse background. That's reflected in her writing, where she wrote both in fiction and nonfiction works, very scholarly nonfiction works, but also very literary fiction. And in this particular book, Dislocations, as far as I can tell, it's the only work of her fiction that's been translated into English. She primarily wrote in Spanish, 
So to have this work in translated into English is an important step to getting more of her work accessible to the wider world. It was originally written in 2010, but only translated to English this past year. And in Dislocations, Malloy has created a kind of fictional version of the time she spent with a friend who is referred only to by her initials ML in the book, who is slowly succumbing to the effects of old age, dementia, Alzheimer's, and other physical limitations related to her conditions. This friend was also once a colleague, a fellow writer, artistic type, and in this way, the character kind of seems to closely parallel someone who you could kind of see being Molloy's real-life friend. Each of the chapters has a title that relates to some aspect of personhood, memory, friendship, and other aspects of one's life that begin to come to question or slowly fade away from view with age as someone begins to sort of slowly age towards death, unfortunately. The chapters themselves are also quite short, usually only a couple of pages or so each, as they sort of try to capture a snapshot or sketch a scene between the narrator and ML. These scenes of recollections and reflections are what comprise the book, so it takes a very reflective approach from a future standpoint looking back, as opposed to a more traditional kind of narrative of like someone getting sick, they slowly decline and then pass away. It's less linear, straightforward way of writing the story. Though the subject matter of the book is definitely very somber at times, Malloy's narration of her friend can at times be very insightful and treats it with kind of delicateness and sort of a genuine empathy for this person that very much shows through in the writing. This includes things like the continuation of little joys, such as celebrating someone's birthday, to mark another year of their time together, to listening to a favorite CD of tango music, and the kind of enjoyment that someone may get from these kind of little things that they have in their life. These are still interspersed with more like heavy scenes, but the book doesn't become bogged down or dwell overly long on any particular aspect of this or like try to become like ultra depressing by sort of dwelling on various parts of her health or condition and things like that. There's also very much the kind of like an observation of the gradual changes in ML, such as the reversion from a plight, like kind of familiar speech to like a more formal speech of the past when they used to use a more familiar style of address. But in the loss of memory, she switched to a more sort of formal way of speech that creates like another kind of loss almost, like another form of distance and feeling having lost something as they used to have this very familiar way of speaking to each other that's now become more distant, more formal, and her overall change in speech style into kind of a, it's kind of like an older style of Spanish that was spoken by their mothers and grandmothers in their youth, but it's no longer commonly spoken in the present day. So in this sense, it's almost like a return to time in the past of still remembering a more old-fashioned way of speaking from her youth. So there's this kind of aspect of remembering something that was once was, but maybe isn't quite how it is in the present. So it's kind of interesting in the way it um, examines these kinds of things as part of memory and the present. There's also some like long forgotten things, such as in cities and places visited or buried away and resurfacing in you know, like a seemingly random fashion. Remembering things like from a dream from very long ago that was once uh, told to her by ML. And she's now once again remembering these things seemingly out of nowhere, but it's also an aspect of herself that is from the past that she's still bringing into the present. So it's looking at these very little things that you might not think of in terms of something that makes someone who they are or the, the sort of relationship that you share with each other. But the fact that it's being remembered and shared with you is something that Malloy wants to think about in terms of like the relationship between these two characters and their friendship with each other. There's also the aspect of ML trying to situate herself in the present. So Malloy mentions that she likes to make lists of things such as groceries, people, 
random assortments of household objects. And she sort of compares this to a scene in uh, the movie Queen Christina with Greta Garbo, where she says, quote, she was remembering objects not to store them in her mind, but to orient herself in the present. So sort of in this way to try and remain in the present, even though you may not remember the past quite so much or to have the memories of who you once were, but to remain present in the current day, to be with the people that you enjoy being with and to not not let everything slip away in that way. So it definitely was trying to give ML very much a strong personhood to remain there, not to just be about like her illness or like her act of forgetting, but the fact that she's still there as this particular person that has like her own kind of way of being in the present. We also get to see some interesting aspects of her character, such as like how the narrator likes to bring these special treats called alfajores. It's kind of like a biscuit cookie sandwich filled with a filling, kind of like something like Dolce de Leche. You can almost call it like, like an Oreo kind of cookie almost, but like with a very different kind of Latin American uh, styling to it. And she tells like a few different vignettes where she brings these to ML as like a gift and the different kind of reactions she gets on different days from confusion to like, what are these? To excitement of like, I love these. To question whether their origins, like where are these from? It's kind of showing the different kinds of mental states and memories from day to day that ML is going through. So you definitely get a different sense of who she is in these different situations based on her kind of mental state at the time. You start to get these different vignettes throughout the book of these different aspects of who ML is, who the narrator is, and how they sort of knew each other. Um, there's another aspect where the narrator remarks on finding these little scraps of paper of notes that the two of them had written together as part of an article that they were going to be publishing and seeing the difference in her handwriting at that time versus the present day. And these kind of little aspects of their time together, her remembrance of ML, and trying to find these little things that she can uh, relate to the present day with her friend that she wants to hold on to, and to make sure that she doesn't forget who her friend once was and what she meant to her personally. Because the theme of memory and loss is clearly very much central to this work. So the different examinations of these things, of how the narrator sort of fears that as her friend begins to fade away, that almost like a part of herself is also going away with her. As she sort of thinks about how, as this person sort of slowly dies, how a part of herself that may not no longer be remembered as well, as there's the aspects of this person who only she knows in a certain way, that only this person knows her in a certain way, how that aspect may also be slowly lost as she remembers the sort of witty, critical, snobby, ironic, and kind aspects of her friend that very much was part of her life in an important way. And also just like a short note, because this is a very short book at only 89 pages. As I mentioned, the chapters are very short, only like a couple of pages each for the most part. It might not seem possible for a book of that length to go into any great depth of detail of the kinds of weighty aspects of memory and identity that I've sort of tried to bring to the forefront in talking about it. But it's actually through the kind of intimacy and precision of the language of the book and the little aspects of the day-to-day that's able to speak in a more clear and matter-of-fact way that gets to the point and the very heart of the matter, much more so than many longer, more narrative-focused books where they may become more bogged down in like the aspects of plot and things like that rather than focusing in on exactly what the author is trying to say. So I feel like even though it's very short, the ideas come through very clearly and very, very effectively draws a picture of these two characters and their relationship with each other. So I found it to be very effective in that way, even though it was a rather short work. 
So if you like books that focus in on the details of a person or expand on what makes someone unique or looking for a book that's both precise and deep in its examination of life, then you may also like Dislocations by Sylvia Malloy. Thank you, Mark, for bringing Chaco Press to the conversation today. Thank you. I feel like I, I can't talk about it again. Like you said, I've said it too many times, apparently. But thank you for doing that. So speaking of which, since your book, you mentioned books with very, very short chapters. I am very curious because I have a very definite preference for this. But I would love to know for our existential question today is, do you have a preference for how long your chapter should be? Is there like such thing as an ideal length of a chapter? Or do you don't care about chapters at all? That's just an artificial division that you could care less about. What is your feeling about chapter lengths? Fiona? I don't know if you know that I have a strong preference about this. Definitely, definitely. I am a short chapter person. Um, it's like maybe one of the most important things in a book for me that that makes it really readable. And I would say like by short, I mean like five to eight pages is like really a good amount. And I feel like I, I like I'd venture to say that people who struggle with print, it probably like I think the extra white space probably helps a lot. And it is why I am not super into epic fantasy because I feel like they often have really long chapters. If a book has no chapters, that's just like a straight no. And uh, But shout out to another one of Virginia's babies, Tor, who uh, actually kind of reverses that really well for uh, the fantasy world. Thank you, Fiona. All right, Sadie, what do you think? I'm kind of agree with Fiona, but I, I can deal with longer chapters. I don't mind super long chapters. I just, what I struggle with is when I'm reading before bed, I always stop at the end of a chapter. And this is something that me and my husband do not agree on. He will stop anywhere in the book and it drives me absolutely crazy. I don't understand it. I have to stop at the end of a chapter. And so if I look and or I flip through the pages and the chapter is very, very long, then I, I do struggle with that. And I usually can't read the next chapter if I want to. I'll usually set a goal number for myself. So if I am at the start of a chapter and I'm getting ready to go to bed. I'll say, okay, if the chapter is less than so many pages, then I will read it. If it is more than that many pages, then I can't read it. So yeah, I would say shorter chapters, but more I, I'm okay in like the 10 to 15 page range. But that doesn't necessarily turn me off from reading a book, I will say. I am a, a big fan of Diana Gabaldon and her chapters are hundreds of pages long. <laughs> and so those ones I do have to, I have to stop in the middle of a chapter. It, it hurts me a little bit to do it, but I do have to. I totally agree. It hurts my brain when people just shut the book wherever they are. I can't, I don't understand. I can't deal with it. And then I will say then too, that I books without chapters, I can't deal with because of that, because I need to have that that stop you. Yeah, I think for the ones who don't have chapters, at least give this a little bit, I don't know what you call them, but there's usually like a, like a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you call that thing? Whatever that little thing that like sort of... Like not a paragraph break, but it's very clear like, oh no, it's like a line break where it's like two or three spaces instead of just one. 
where you can see like, okay, now it's like switching to a new scene, but not a new chapter. Yeah. They wanted to change scenes, but not change chapters for whatever particular reason. Yeah. It's like, or like a little symbol that sort of signifies at the end of like a section, like if there's that, I can deal with it. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of the same, like definitely shorter shops. I find, I don't know, like Sadie, cause I know you also read ebooks. I don't have a sense of pages anymore these days. <laughs> Because the ebook will tell me I have 10 minutes left. So like a chapter that is 10 minutes is great. That's, but so I don't really know what a page is anymore. So I find that like, you know, it's it's getting trickier in terms of how many pages. Because, you know, both and you and Fiona will talk about like, yeah, five to 10 about. And I'm like, I don't know what that is anymore. But yeah, like definitely a, a preference for shorter chapters. I feel like I'm I'm moving along. But same with you, Sadie, like if it is a book without chapters or if it's a book has a very long chapter, it wouldn't stop me from reading it would just makes it more difficult. Like, I just need to make sure I have that amount of time that I'm going to sit and get to the end before I shut that book up, before I throw the bookmark in there. How about you, Mark? Yeah, I definitely have some similar to Sadie and Virginia as well, where it's like, if there's a particular chapter, I'm like trying either, I only have like 30 minutes or like, say maybe, for example, or if it's like late at night, it's like, okay, I want to read another chapter, but I don't want to stop in the middle because I, I don't understand stopping the middle of chapters unless you like absolutely have to like stop at that point. If two characters in the middle of like important scenes, like you can't just like stop in the middle and be like, okay, I'm gonna come back here. It's like in real life, or if you're like watching a movie or having a conversation with someone, it's like, okay, I don't have time right now. I'll just cut it here and they'll just come back again later. Like that doesn't really make much sense to me personally. So I do tend to like some shorter-ish chapters at times as well. I don't mind it too much if it work as like really short and then really long chapters sometimes like they might have like one or two page chapters and then they have like a 40 page chapter after that i don't necessarily mind that so it doesn't have to be like a particular length of the chapters as long as there's like a feeling that i can like stop somewhere logically without having to go through like a really long period because there's also some books where it's like oh you got like a really long part one part two part three but the book is like 300 something pages long so then you have to go like a hundred pages with like, okay, well, where am I going to stop on this? Like some of those can be a bit hard to deal with at times, I think. Um, so definitely having a set chapter length rather than, or not being a set chapter length, but like a set marker of a chapter rather than having to go like, okay, one, two, three, like, well, where am I going to stop? So I have a question for the audiobook listeners here. What do you do with audiobooks? Like, cause you know, give your, I know that many of you do it like in the car, right? Like you're listening to So do you just stop when your trip is over or do you wait until the end of the chapter? Okay, so I'm interested to hear what Sadie has to say because I think it'll be very different than me. But yes, the answer for me is yes. It's just wherever I am, like mid-sentence. But I think, Virginia, you've also experienced me coming in because when I listen is uh, on the way to work and on the way home to work. So you've experienced me coming into work just like first thing, you know, Virginia's like trying to have her coffee and I'm like, oh my God, my audio book. And it's because like you might be at the height of a scene and and I just, I had to turn it off. Like on when it's really intense and I'm not late for work, I might sit in the car for like five minutes and let it like come to a cooling point. But it's not necessarily a good solution, but I do just sort of exit whenever I have to. I do the same. Weirdly enough, I do the same. Yeah, like I feel weird just sitting in my car, like down in the parkade underneath my, my building partially because I know that people are waiting for me to come home upstairs or I should be at work or something like that. So I do occasionally, same as Fiona, I will just sit there and listen. But I find that unless, because I I play it on, it's through my phone, but it's on the screen of my my car. And so it doesn't 
it shows me the full length of the book, but it doesn't show me the length of the chapter. And so without actually picking up my phone and looking at how long is left in the chapter, I don't really know. And so I won't usually do that. I'll just kind of come to a more natural stopping point occasionally, but I usually just turn it off and it breaks my heart every single time I do it. I, I'm, I'm new to audiobooks, so maybe I'll figure out a different system. But All right. Well, thank you all of you for sharing those. I, I love these questions because it helps me get to know you all and also sometimes I'm just kind of wondering like is it just me or is it just a thing that I do or is this a thing for anybody else right like I always heard like yeah so great I'm glad to know um, that we're all chapter people <laughs> all right thank you so much I'm gonna go to Fiona what kind of small press book do you have for us today Yes, I'm very excited about my book and my small press. Uh, I read a book from Fernwood Publishing for today. Fernwood is based out of Nova Scotia. Uh, it started in, in Halifax, but now they're actually in Black Point, Nova Scotia. And I don't actually know where that is. Is I'm guessing it's quite small. So it was founded in 1991, and they focus on books that inform, enlighten, and challenge. I think that is a great statement because I love a book that challenges. And they are a more academic publisher, and you get a sense of that looking through their catalog of just like, I want to read absolutely everything because I feel like it would make me such a smart and better person. <laughs> and so just that feeling of like, oh yeah, like this, th this would be so worth the, the effort. Um, you know, I would get so much from this it is definitely the sense you get when you're looking through their books, but it also, you know, kind of speaks to the fact that they're not necessarily widely read books. They're more niche for specific uh, classroom settings, secondary, secondary education settings, but they also have a little bit of like a, a an anti-capitalism and anti-establishment uh, viewpoint. So uh, I find that very interesting and bold. It's fun to to find that that niche, as you say, of like you know sometimes you find a publisher that just you know it's it's very sp specific uh, to a need, um, and I think that is totally exciting about small publishers. I'm super excited about the book I'm going to talk about. I think if I were to make a book of my top 10, it might just be on there in terms of, you know, books that stayed with me. So this is a memoir, Just Jen, Thriving Through Multiple Sclerosis by Jen Powley. As I mentioned, it's a memoir of Jen's life. At age 15, uh, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, uh, and that's quite young for an MS diagnosis. And MS can be slowly degenerative, or it can come in waves of flare-ups and improvements. And Jen's life has sort of been, her, her experience with MS has sort of been both. So as a young person, Jen had a lot of goals. She was a go-getter. And in her early life, in her early diagnosis, it's sort of her fighting through the loss of those goals and then ultimately realizing that she's not going to give up on them, that MS is not going to be a barrier. She's just going to adapt what she wants to do to her reality. And she is very affected by and influenced by Viktor Frankl and his writing and this idea that instead of saying, why me? saying, why not me? You know, people go through difficult things uh, and that's the reality. So 
her attitude is, is amazingly inspiring in that way of the sort of just like, this is my reality and I'm going to do it. But she is also completely unflinching in her description of reality and the fact that that includes a lot of difficult things. Uh, she talks about eating disorder. She talks about mental health and suicide. And she does not flinch away from the idea of sex uh, and talking about sex and what that means in the disability community, which it was absolutely amazing to read such a direct memoir. And I really appreciated that. She considers herself to be an author by circumstance, and that really shows in her writing style. She also is in a wheelchair at the point of writing this and has lost the use of her hands. So the memoir is actually written through the help of an assistant. So she is dictating um, and the assistant writes. And that urgency comes through in the writing. It is a very small chapter, which I love. And she doesn't mince words at all. Everything is just right there on the surface, which I just, I love a, a twisty, turny, delicately written book. But there's just something about Gut Puncher that is just so easy to read and that you just can't put down. And I think that's ultimately what made it so affecting. She just says it like it is. She talks about a lot of different aspects of disability, the isolation, the mental health issues. She talks about eating disorders and how they're common for people with MS because they're a way to exert control. And all of this information uh, was really informative and taught me so much about MS and also the disability community. But she also has an amazing sense of humor, just like just so fun and such a black sense of humor. And she has an awareness of her worth, which is so refreshing. Um, you know, she both accepts help as, you know, somebody who's in a wheelchair. Uh, she needs a caretaker. She needs a driver, all of these things. And she's both able to accept that help from people, but not let it take away from her own value. And she is a real mover and shaker in the community. Um, and she has multiple degrees and she's an advocate for disability. It's filled with lots of uh, little vignettes of experiences like going to a lecture and realizing that all of the wheelchair spots are on the outside of the the seating. You know, you, you have an end of a row and there's a spot for a wheelchair, but there is no wheelchair accessibility for a speaker in these places because the assumption there is that uh, someone in a wheelchair is always going to be watching. They're not going to be on the stage. They're not going to be giving the speech. Uh, so she draws attention to a lot of that and in particular uh, around the area of Halifax and sort of assessing its uh, lack of disability inclusion. So I would really recommend this to anybody who enjoys memoirs. You know, I think they can be some of the most affecting types of books, and, and this is no exception. I can imagine it would be completely invaluable if you or someone you knew had an MS diagnosis. And I also really want to put it out there for people who are trying to challenge themselves with uh, books from different perspectives, because I think that the amount that you will learn in this, this like small volume is just so huge. And I, you know, I understand why it's part of a, a small press catalog, but I just find myself wishing like, you know, I wish that this could be more widely read. I wish that we didn't consider it to be so niche. And I think there are some positive movements in publishing in that way. But but I just feel like uh, her voice is one that really deserves to be to be heard quite widely. That is Just Jen 
Thriving Through Multiple Sclerosis uh, by Jen Powley. Thank you, Fiona, for bringing not just a Canadian press to the conversation today, but also bringing like a press that helps us stay more informed, more educated about, like you said, all the different perspectives. And for today, I have a book that, well, it was a long weekend. So I actually got a chance to like read a lot of books from small presses this this past weekend. And, and I'm really thankful for like just the variety that is out there. But what captured my heart this week was a bunch of chickens. This is a book that I have had my eyes for a while purely because of the cover. I had no idea what the book is about at all. But when I realized that it was from a small press, I figured, okay, if it's our topic today, it is time to finally read it. So this is Barn 8 by Deb Olin Unferth. Just look at that chicken. I just love this chicken so much. I don't even know why. Anyway, 900,000 chickens, 303 people, helpers, 60 commercial trucks, and five organizers, five heads of the operation, equal the biggest chicken heist in history. The plan is to sneak into Happy Green Family Farm, a small industrial egg farm at night, and using the organizer's words, to remove the hens and then deposit them at different sanctuaries across the country. The sanctuaries that I don't think they really know what to expect and how many chickens <laughs> that is going to get dropped off. According to the organizers, they are not interested in media coverage. This is not a publicity stunt. They are not trying to make a point even. But maybe, as one of the organizers, Annabelle, said, the point of this whole heist is not to use them, the chickens, meaning, for a single beeping hour. Is it so much to ask? As Jonathan, the person in charge of logistics, keeps telling them, this is impossible. This is madness. Who came up with this outrageous idea to steal 900,000 chickens? Well, that would be Janie Flores. When we first met Janie, she was 15. She was on a bus bound for Iowa from Brooklyn because she has recently found out that she actually has a father. And so she decides to go meet him. She never even know that for all her life, her mom kept that a secret from her. But as she got off the bus, as she meets her father, she realized maybe this is all a big mistake. Her father is a little disappointing, shall we say. It is not at all what she imagined at all. And this surprise visit, this family reunion is not following the script that she has prepared and rehearsed on the whole bus ride. This is all going wrong. But she decides to stay anyway, just for a little bit, just to make him pay for all the years that he has missed because apparently he knew that she exists, but he just never bothered to find her. Unfortunately, this temporary stay turns into a permanent stay when an accident happens. Now, stuck in Iowa, Janie decides to finish high school there, 
and then got a job at a shipping company. She could care less about school. She could care less about her job. And she could feel the other Janie, the Janie that is supposed to be in Brooklyn, the Janie that is supposed to be staying with her mom in this beautiful apartment, the Janie that is supposed to get into college, maybe go into law school and become an attorney. That Janie is slipping away. The new Janie is just there doing a boring job. Then her father said, well, why don't we see if Cleveland can help you out, can get you a different kind of job? Cleveland is someone whom her mother used to babysit very long time ago. And Cleveland has very, very fond memories of Janie's mother, Olivia. Cleveland idolizes Olivia. Olivia was the one who introduced her to everything. And so she thought, yeah, absolutely. I will help Olivia's daughter. Maybe this is sort of my way to pay back for all the amazing things that Olivia has taught her. So she agrees to introduce Janie to a new job. And Janie cannot believe that there is a job more boring than the shipping company job that she's already doing. Cleveland turns out to be the head of the Iowa Layer Hand Farm Audits. She's an auditor. And so all she does is go from farm to farm to try to make sure that all the farms are following the rules and regulations. And there are so many rules and regulations, as Janie will soon learn and have to memorize all of them. And Cleveland, just like her dad, is not turning out to be whom she thinks or whom she imagines this is going to be. And so she's just tagging along and following Cleveland. And one day they were at a farm and she went inside the barn to find Cleveland. And she sees that Cleveland has her phone. Every auditor knows that you're not supposed to bring your phone into the farm. There is absolutely no photos, no video, no filming allowed because they don't want any of that to get out. But here it is, Cleveland taking a video, not just of the chickens, but like the worst part of the farm, the things that are definitely against regulation. So maybe Cleveland is a little bit more interesting than she thinks she is. Now, let me be clear. Barn 8 is not a heist book. This is not a book about the planning on an execution of this perfect heist, even though there is definitely that involved. There's a guy in charge of everything and there's a team that never quite agree on what they have to do. But it's not about the thrill. It's not about the plot. That's not the focus here. Even though the idea of like stealing 900,000 chickens seems outrageous, it is not portrayed in like a fast-paced thriller kind of way. It is it's very realistic and, and it's almost to a point where it is mundane and kind of boring. Instead, this is a very character-driven book about all the people that were involved directly or indirectly or affected by the heist, by this attempted theft. And we get the story from multiple people, including, of course, Janie and Cleveland. We also get a, um, a story from Dill, who is an ex-animal rights group leader who has been let go, maybe, or the organization has just sort of moved on without him. 
There's Annabelle, the farmer's daughter, who's rebelling against everything that she has grown up with. And she has started what she called investigators. They, they are people that pretend to be like working at the farm, but they're actually secretly reporting all their infractions. And then there's Jonathan, the ex-husband of Annabelle, who fell in love with Annabelle when he first came to visit her father's farm to try to sell them his new and improved cages and the design that he has come up with. And somehow he's finding himself like stuck again in the orbit of Annabelle. And we also get to hear from the farmer who owns the farm. We get to hear from a park ranger. We get to hear from the security guard, the temporary security guard, and just a wide range of characters that help us build our story and, and build our understanding. And at no point do you feel like these characters are heroic, so to speak. Like they just somehow all got together to do this thing, but it doesn't feel like they are trying to save anything or being heroic. But I think that's what's charming about the book. It's just like it feels so realistic and so real in some way and everything seems so genuine. And it is really a testimony to how well the author can create these characters and make them care about them in so little space. And of course, woven into the whole story is all the research that the author has done on egg farming and all the facts about chickens and how humans have kind of basically ruined them all, how intelligent they are and the way they communicate. But again, never at any point do you feel like, oh, chickens, you know, like you, you don't feel sentimental about them because this is not really what the, the book is about. And, you know, speaking of like kind of the horror side of it, like just the way the author, Deb Olinifer, describes the battery farms and the living conditions of these farms. And you can just these rows and rows and rows and rows of chickens and cages. And it feels almost like a horror movie in the way it is. And so it's an awful environment that the, these chickens are in. But again, it does not feel didactic. At no point you feel like the author is trying to preach at you, you know, about what you should or should not do. And I think that's sort of what works about the story. It's just there's so many different ways you can interpret what, what the author is trying to say. And I am not really sure if I know exactly. But what I can say is that no matter how much humans like to destroy things, I think the chickens will still be okay. So a really funny book, despite a, a serious subject and just a lovable group of misfits. And it was just such a, such a fun book. And Barn 8 by Deb Olin and Firth is published by Grey Wolf Press. And Grey Wolf Press, on their website, they have this quote from a American author, Elizabeth Alexander. And it, it, it kind of speaks to the name of the press. It said, Elizabeth Alexander, she imagined a literal gray wolf that are neither exclusively black or white, something fierce and howling at the moon like writers themselves. And that's sort of the inspiration for the name. And um, they publish about like 30 to 35 books every year. They start off by publishing poetry, and they still focus on that. But of course, it also includes fiction and nonfiction. They publish American literature, but also international literature. And as they say, they believe in works of literature that nourish the reader's spirit and enrich the broader culture, and that they must be supported by attentive editing, compelling design, and creative promotion. Well, the cover definitely got me. So I would highly, highly recommend this chicken book. This is Barn 8 by Deb Olin Anferv. 
All right. So thank you everyone for joining us. And thank you for all my book friends for bringing all these amazing small presses books. There are only four of us, so we can only talk about four, but there's so, so, so many more out there. I hope you will take some time this month. And of course, like we always say, the rest of the year to check out some more small presses book. And we will see you again next week. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.